Welcome to episode 2 of Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop, a 7-episode series. I'm Desmond Chiu, a producer at Esplanade, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre, and I'll be narrating the story of Singapore's Chinese pop. Some of our interviewees in this episode spoke in Mandarin and Cantonese, and I'll be translating these soundbites for you into English. In the last episode, you heard about how singers like Zhuang Xuefan and Pun Sao King or Pan Xiu Qiong achieved success in markets beyond Singapore in the 1950s. And many of our music makers have continued to venture into the different epicenters of Chinese pop ever since. Is there a signature style that has enabled Singapore's performers and songwriters to make their mark in this larger landscape? Chen Yunen, the co-founder of music website Fresh Music, shares his thoughts. One of the interesting things I think about Singaporeans, right? I think we are very good at adapting. So, be it the epicenter is Hong Kong or Taiwan, we are able to understand what is the needs of the industry, of the audience at that particular time. And this is how we have always been. But at the same time, there will always be some subtle, very subtle difference that we can provide. To the normal listeners, it's same, same, but different. But you also can't really point out what's a different thing in a very exact manner. So this same thing but different thing, right? I think it matters a lot because firstly, you must achieve the same, same thing. Because if you cannot do the same, same sound, you can't reach the mass audience. But the different part is what helps us to stay on. So what is it that makes us different? Well, let's go back to the 1961 concert by Cliff Richard and the Shadows that you first heard about in episode 1. That performance inspired a whole generation of musicians in Singapore. A few years later, the Beatles exploded onto the international scene and the craze for pop music from the UK kicked into an even higher gear. In 1965, songwriter Shang Guan Liuyun wrote The Wave of Beatlemania by penning Cantonese lyrics to the melodies of two Beatles songs, Come By Me Love and I Saw Her Standing There. His versions were titled Han Fai Di La, which means Walk Faster La, and Yat Sam Seong Yuk Yang, which means Thinking About My Beloved. These became canto pop favourites and were covered by many singers as was his Mandarin song Midnight Kiss, Wu Ye Xiang Wen. That makes Shang Guan Liuying one of the earliest Singapore songwriters to contribute to the shared pop songbook of the Chinese diaspora, and he will not be the last. You will hear from some of these later songwriters in just a few minutes, but for now, let's stay a little longer in the swinging 60s which was when budding musician John Teo taught himself how to play the guitar. John joined a band that would eventually be called The Stylers. According to writer Joseph Pereira, this group is the most recorded band in Singapore's history. They not only made their own albums, but also played on hundreds of records backing local and regional Chinese artists. But before all that, this band played rock and roll. The earliest version of The Stylers was made up of Malay and Chinese boys from Kampung Wak, Tanjong. In the 1960s, they took part in the Cliff Richard and the Shadows contest held by Shaw Organization. The finals took place at Shaw's Sky Theatre in Great World Amusement Park. It was fantastic. Some people bring the amplifiers, you know. For example, there is one band uh, whose father is an electrician or whatever. Uh, well, he made the amplifiers uh, was so big and so nice. Uh, we look until... Uh, <laughs> His band won second place at this competition and was soon playing lots of gigs, including early bird shows at the Capitol and Odeon Cinemas. 
Normally, last time uh, in theaters uh, where they have movie here, they will either put some show or maybe put a guitar band or put in other thing before the show started, especially during a premiere. Then sometimes even do a talent time also. This will also uh, help to bring in the crowd. They put their twist on popular dance music like the cha-cha, which had a local variation called offbeat cha-cha that was very popular with the Chinese crowd. This is the craze during that time. Soon, the stylus became a very popular backing band for the girl tie. By the 1960s, these live shows could be found all over Singapore, especially during the Hungry Ghost Festival. To maximize their earnings, Thai singers try to hit as many Thai stages as they can in a single night. And the stylists could help them do that by shaving valuable millions off each set. When we play eh, in this Thai, we have a kind of a format now. We don't waste singers' time. Let's say we say, Ming Chu Chie Mei come. Then they come with three songs. We will medley all the songs. We will join, 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 finish. Then they have more time to perform at other stages. That, that is why a lot of people want to come to our stage. We will never allow slow song. For example, there's some one or two, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to name who. Then they come one song with Wang Chao Jing. Wang Chao Jing, you know that song lasts how long? Nearly five or six minutes. Mm-hmm. Poor fella, our, the, our, another singer is waiting behind. So they wait. They can't go and, go, go and earn money from other, other place. While there were exceptions, girl Thai singers were generally not recording artists and vice versa. But in the 1970s, these lines blurred as recording artists started appearing in girl Thai light skits in a new type of performance venue. Music industry veteran Lim Sik explains. I think slowly, at one point in Singapore's Chinese pop history, they started to have a lot of live houses, uh, what we call Ge Yuan. They basically took a Taiwanese format. Those famous actresses and singers and all that would perform a show, a 45-minute show or something. And included in this show always would be a finale, which is like a comedy, like a short musical uh, gag. One famous live house was the Wisma Theatre. Located where the Wisma Atrial Shopping Centre now stands. These venues featured many of the top Hong Kong and Taiwanese singers of the day. There were also many nightclubs and record labels in Singapore, which made the 1970s a boom time for the Chinese music scene. Entertainment journalist Alice Kwan, better known as Kwan Xue Mei, names some of the major labels from that time. The provision of record companies meant they were hungry for talent, so there were many local singers as well. John shares his memories of the era's most popular homegrown performers. Zhang Xiaoying during that time was superb. Her voice is so unique and so sweet. Yeah. Huang Qingyuan was also at the top of his game. He has a special crooning voice. The voice made his records sell like hotcakes. At first, these albums had to be transported from Malaysia, where they were manufactured, to Singapore, where lorry drivers were eagerly waiting to deliver this precious cargo to record shops. During that Wang Qingyan era, the piece of uh, EP, uh, four songs, uh, EP, uh, 
is even more valuable than money. The lorry drivers will wait at the JB Causeway, you know, waited, wait for the release of the album, especially uh, the song called Arana. Arana, all this song, ayo, that one is the killer. John also worked with another local singer whose nickname was Queen of Tears, thanks to all her sad love songs. But actually, she's a pretty upbeat person. This is Lisa Wong from Singapore. When she was growing up, Lisa actually preferred English pop. The Cliff Richard fever of the 1960s had hit her too. It wasn't the guitars that got her, but his lovely singing voice. Cliff Richard She also loved the agogo flair of Sakura Ting and Rita Chow, two popular local singers who were known as Inghua and Ling Yun. They sang in Mandarin and English, and were often backed by the local band The Quest in their albums. The teenage Lisa liked to dance, and she loved the way Sakura and Rita moved on stage. Their outgoing image was more westernized than the other Chinese pop stars of the time, and that really appealed to her. Soon, her brother formed a band with his friends, and through their connections, Lisa started to perform English pop at parties and other events. The first time she was paid $15 for a gig, she was over the moon. After all, she says, a clerk earned only around $70 a month in those days and a worker about $1 a day. Besides, she loved singing. In 1969, when she was 19 years old, Lisa auditioned for a record label and was offered a two-year contract on the spot. But her excitement turned to dismay when she told her mother the big news. Lisa offered to reenact her mother's response in Cantonese for us so that we could get the full dramatic impact of her anxiety. Having watched many movies where young women were forced into indecent proposals when they became entertainers, her mother was very worried about what Lisa had gotten herself into. So for a while, she made sure a family member went with Lisa to every engagement related to her contract. Eventually, her family realized that the industry was not a hotbed of scene. Lisa soon moved to a bigger recording company where her boss's name was Lucky, and Lucky asked her to move away from Mandarin and English songs and tried singing in Cantonese instead. Here's how she reacted. 
。那我听到说不要，我真的吓死了。我说不要，我是因为在那个年代，广东歌曲、福建歌曲、潮州歌曲那些方言没有人听的。According to Lisa, songs in Chinese dialects were not as popular with most listeners, and she was very reluctant to switch to Cantonese pop. But lucky was indeed lucky. One of Lisa's first Cantonese songs was a sad love song titled "Xiang Si Lei" or "Tears of Love." It was originally released by a Malaysian singer and had not made much impact. But when Lisa's cover was distributed to record stores from Chinatown to Topayo, it was an immediate hit. 每次他们一播这首歌的时候，人家走过立刻就会围过来，谁唱的，什么歌名，立刻买，全部都是立刻买。Whenever the record stores played this song, crowds would form, and they would snap up the album instantly. The success of Tears of Love even gave Lisa the chance to venture into the Hong Kong market. She still remembers the rousing welcome fans gave her when she touched down at the airport. 我一踏出去的时候，哈，全部的人在喊我的名字 ，Lisa, Lisa. It was a great adventure, but Lisa thinks that many of her Hong Kong fans probably didn't know that she was from Singapore. And after some years in the business. She decided that she couldn't be a singer forever, and enrolled herself in some beauty and nutrition courses to plan for a future outside of entertainment. In 1982, she recorded her final album. Around this time, a big shift was taking place in Singapore's Chinese pop scene. The one thing the vibrant music industry of the 1970s lacked was original songs. Even the most popular singers of the time generally sang cover versions of songs from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and sometimes Japan. But the game was about to change. At that point in time, there are also young artists who are discovered by local record labels. People like Maggie Teng, Deng Miaohua. They had the looks and they had the voice, and they got recorded, and then they started to appear on TV as well. In the 1980s. Maggie broke into the Taiwanese market, singing songs written for her by a Taiwanese team. In Singapore, she is also remembered for singing the theme song of the drama series Xiao Fei Yu, The Little Flying Fish. In fact, such theme songs were some of the most well-known tunes in the country. Several were composed by twin brothers Li Wei Song and Li Si Song. They got their start in show business as teenagers when they took part in the theme song competition in 1983. Soon they were going to the TV station after school to hear producers recount the plotlines of TV series, so they could craft catchy themes. Hi everyone, I'm Singapore Mandarin Pop producer Li Sisong. 大家好，我是新加坡音乐人李思松。电视剧你一定要摸透整部电视剧的故事内容，哈，它的起伏，然后它的年代背景。啊，这个故事是在讲哪一个年代的？是现代的还是古代的？那这个故事是发生在哪一个地方？是发生在，比如说，呃呃呃，是讲的是广东，呃，有一个地方叫做山水红头巾的那个红，讲的是这个广东的这个地方，所以我们必须要去听一些跟广东乐曲有关的一些旋律。嗯，然后你才会写出那个红头巾。当时候这些人从广东来到这边当苦力，然后你那个那个山水的那个味道是长什么样子的？轻轻的一声祝福，秋风送我上征途，很有味道哈、哦。
To write a good theme song, he says, they needed to understand the story, the characters, and the setting of the show. For instance, the 1986 series Samsui Women was about characters from China's San Shui, who came to Singapore to work as laborers in the 20th century. To create this theme, Sisong Ereson listened to traditional tunes from that region of China so they could better understand the cultural feel of the character's hometown. Other youths were making waves as well. Chinese students in Singapore started to compose their own songs, form singing groups and stage concerts in their schools. This phenomenon was later named Sing Yao, which means Singapore songs. It was partly influenced by the Taiwanese campus folk music of the 1970s, but Yu Yunnan draws some distinctions between the two movements. For Taiwan, I think there are some more culturally and maybe political reasons for the starting of all these things. Singapore, I would say that it really started from something really simple. You know, I just want to, we just want to do our own music kind of thing. I would say that's how they started. This may have been a simple dream, but it was not easy to achieve at a time where original songs were literally unheard of. Eric Mu, Wu Qixian, is a key figure of Xingyao. He had moved from Malaysia to Singapore as a child and wrote his first song when he was in Jurong Junior College. In an interview, he said that none of his classmates believed that the song was created by him because in those days, only people from overseas wrote songs. Eric went on to form the singing group Underground Express, Di Xia Tie. Alice remembers attending an early concert of theirs at Jurong Junior College and covering many Xingyao singers and events after that as the movement grew. She was struck by the innocence and enthusiasm of these young people. Others in the media were supportive as well. At that time, Lim Sik was a producer for Chinese TV variety shows where he featured some of these singer artists. I started to work with a lot of the singer artists, but I wanted to add something more to it. You know, Sing was pretty much a school performance kind of thing. They wrote their own songs and so on. I thought the time was right to create idols. Just like in Hong Kong, in Japan, right, they had a lot of young teenage idols flooding the market. So I thought, yeah, maybe if I concentrate on just a few of the Sing artists with idol potential, then maybe we can have our own Singapore pop idol, Chinese pop idols. So that's why I featured people like Eric Mu, Thomas Teo, Wu Qixian Jiang Hu. The disadvantage that Singapore artists have over foreign artists is that not many of them have recordings at that time. Their only medium would be when they appear on TV, right? But then, because of the regularity of appearance, they become household names, some of them. So they get signed up by local record labels, with a record, right, then they can get onto radio. That's how the wheel turns. In 1982, Media Corp has Gerlin Season, one of the radio programs that introduced all these uh, new up-and-coming songwriter-singer. So I think that program also kind of give a push to the singer movement. That's producer Billy Koh, Xu Huanlian, who got his start in Xingyao when he was a student at Singapore Polytechnic. In the 1980s, he was a member of a singing group called Sui Chao San Chong Chang, or The Straws. I think at that time, we didn't realise that we are making a movement. Not much attention was given to culture at the time. Culture was more treated like social activities rather than economic activities. 
when we were part in the senior movement, we were just doing it for fun. So I think Sikyang reached a peak during the mid-80s. And then just like any movement, when there's a peak, there will be a downturn. So Jinyao become like turning cold after 1986. And then a lot of us will start to rethinking of what we have to do next. By 1987, English had become the main language of instruction in most of Singapore's schools. Mother tongues such as Chinese were taught as a second language. Some have pointed to this change in policy as one factor for the decline of the Xinyao movement. In any case, it was time for these Xinyao artists to grow up and make some decisions about their future. Some left music behind, but others chose to keep going, even though a career in music was not the conventional path to success at a time when the Singapore economy was laser-focused on finance and manufacturing. In 1986, the Straws released a song penned by Xinyao icon Liang Wenfu. It was titled, 我们的歌在哪里? That means, where are our songs? The melody sounds pensive, but the lyrics are actually gently defiant. In the verse you just heard, Leon writes, in part, I don't believe that life has just one meaning. I don't believe that we have to sing the same song. The chorus repeats the title, Where are our songs? Different Xinyao pioneers sought different answers to this question. In 1986, Eric turned his attention to Taiwan and eventually became a well-known singer-songwriter in the greater Chinese market. The same year, Billy co-founded music production company Ocean Butterflies along with other members of the Xinyao cohort. They produced records for singers from Hong Kong, Taiwan and Malaysia and also did a roaring business in advertising jingles. While working on an album of Singapore national songs, Billy met Kit Chan, Chen Jiayi. When I first recorded her singing Count of Me Singapore in the studio, I was kind of uh, amazed by this little girl. She was wearing a school uniform from Raffles Girls School. She was very outspoken. It's not common in Singapore because most Singapore college students at that time was like very shy. So uh, she kind of surprised me. And then uh, she sang very well. At that time, I thought her voice sounds a little bit between Sina Eastern and maybe Carpenter. She told him about her ambition of becoming a professional singer. But Keith wanted to sing English songs. And Billy told her that it would be tough competing with the Western artists in that space. Sometime later, they connected again. And Billy found out that she had indeed been turned down by several record labels. But Keith had not given up on her dream and she was prepared to give Chinese market a go. In 1992, she signed on with Ocean Butterflies, and the company started to explore ways for her to break into Taiwan. At that time, I was actually already producing some albums and records for Taiwan artists. So during one of the sessions, I actually brought her along to Taiwan. I just give her a map. I said, okay, this is uh, the map of Taipei City. So during daytime, I will have to work. So you will take this map and go to wherever you want, do your adventure, and then we meet up for dinner, and then you can tell me what is your discovery in the day. 
during that trip, I also brought her to some of my musician friends to speak to them, to, to listen to their opinions on her. With her limited vocabulary, she's able to survive in Taiwan for, for that few days. I kind of concluded she is very unique. She is not a typical Singaporean. She's a new generation of Singaporeans whereby they are willing to take chance. They are willing to explore. Despite Kik's adventurous spirit, things did not go well at first in Taiwan. The reason mainly is because they are very skeptical about whether or not a Singaporean artist can make it in Taiwan. So in 1993, we decided not to wait for Taiwan anymore. We decided to launch Kit Chan's first Mandarin album in Singapore with one of the Japanese labels called Pony Kenyan at the time. I think at this point, uh, I want to express my gratitude to the MD of uh, Pony Canyon at the time, Jimmy Wee. Before he became the MD of Pony Canyon, he was also MD of Warner Record, which actually helped a lot of artists, including Dick Lee, Mark Chan, to come into the scenes. So I talked to Jimmy, and then we decided to launch uh, Kit Chan's first album in Singapore in 1993. Billy had a kind of eclectic musical exposure that was typical of a Singaporean music maker. As a young student, he had sung in a choir and played in a Chinese orchestra. And before Sing Yao came along, his teenage years were full of Western influences like the Beatles, Bob Dylan and the Bee Gees. As he crafted Kick's debut album, he leaned into the Singaporean tendency for remixing diverse sounds into something unique. I think uh, as a Singaporean, because we are exposed to both Eastern and Western culture. That's why when we create music, we always try to find something interesting instead of just copying what the West did or, or what the East, East can do. So we always try to blend both sides. Kit Chan, actually, she likes a lot of independent alternative music. Her liking somewhat also kind of uh, influenced into my listening habit. So I think at the time, we were trying to find some intersection between alternative and what we call mainstream. Kik's first album was called 不要上了和气, which means do not destroy the harmony. It won her some awards in Singapore and that sparked new interest from Taiwanese labels. In 1994, she finally launched an album in Taiwan. And for this album, Billy composed a song specifically to appeal to the Taiwanese market. This was a sad love song called Sing Tong, Heartache. Sintong, no doubt, is a ballad, but the structure, the, the, the melody, the way that the production is, is going, I think it's a little bit westernized. And, and because Kit Chan, she has a little bit of musical theatre background, so I was trying to incorporate a little bit of that musical background things into that pop song. That, that's not heard in most of the Taiwan kids song at the time. Kit's Taiwanese record company was not confident about the commercial viability of this song, but eventually, they decided to release it and it became a huge hit. This was a landmark moment in Singapore's Chinese pop history. It wasn't the first time that a Singaporean singer or a Singaporean songwriter-producer had succeeded in an overseas market, but it was the first time they had done it as a team, and more such teams soon followed, including singer Mavis He Xu Meijing and composer Chen Jiaming, who had also been part of the Xinya movement. At that time, it kind of uh, gave me a lot of encouragement because I feel that Although Singapore is small, we can dream big and we can do something beyond our land. When I first go to Taiwan, some of the famous producers, I won't won't name who, say, oh, you're from Singapore. I've been there before. It's such a boring place. No wonder you guys cannot write great music. (laughs) 
So after Kichuan became successful, after Xu Meijing became successful in the late, late 90s, uh, I met another producer, not the same producer, but another producer, but also quite a famous producer. So, oh, you're from Singapore. I've been there. It's such an international country. No wonder you can strike good song. <laughs> so I think the most important thing which I always use to encourage a lot of people is that don't be trapped by the perspective of what people viewing over you. Sometimes we can't change whatever the, the, the external environment, but what you can change is your perspective. If you can build some kind of energy within yourself, then with this energy, you can radiate to the people who believe in you. And when more people believe in you, you can change the world. His can-do spirit was much needed in the late 1990s when the Taiwanese music industry was badly affected by rampant piracy. As major labels acquired many smaller companies that were struggling, the market became saturated with pop stars known more for their good looks than their music. At that time, we were kind of in some way puzzled. We don't know where the industry is going. But when we're feeling down, we always look back how we ended up to become a music producer, become a musician. We realized that the reason why we're still working on music is because we love music. Actually, musical work is the core business of the music industry. You have, to, you have to write good songs, you have to build great artists. It's not about selling records, it's about making music. With that in mind, Ocean Butterflies launched a training course to discover new talent. Thousands auditioned, including two future Singaporean pop stars, Atu and JJ Ling, Ling Junjie. Ocean Butterflies offered Atu a contract because his husky voice and everyman appeal was exactly what was missing in Taiwan's pop music at that time. As for JJ, Billy was impressed by his diligence as a songwriter. He was a very, very hardworking person. But at that time, his songwriting skill was not good and most of his song was very outdated. Because I think that at the time, JJ is a big fan of uh, Canton pop. <laughs> so he listened to a lot of Cantonese songs. And then a lot of songs that he wrote was like, sounded much older than his age. JJ used to come to my room with uh, the new song that he wrote. And then after I spent time patiently listening to his song, I would tell him that, hey, this song is not good. Uh, you have to fix this, you have to fix that. And then, and then he would take my opinions and go back and rework on the song. And maybe a few days later, he'll come on with a, with a new fix plus new song. <laughs> this kind of situation has been going around for like almost 18 months and none of his song has passed my grade. So I realized that uh, this little lad was quite unique in a, in a way that because many teenagers with this kind of rejection, they were probably gone home. But JJ didn't. He keep coming back. One day, a JJ composition finally met Billy's high expectation, and that eventually became Te or Remember, a song recorded by Taiwanese diva Zhang Hui Mei and a definite contemporary classic in Mandarin pop. It's just one of the many iconic Chinese pop songs created by Singaporean songwriters, and that includes not just songwriters from the Xinjiang movement, but also those from the English-language pop scene, like Dick Lee. You will hear more from Dick in future episodes, but here, he talks about his foray into Hong Kong. I got introduced to the Hong Kong market 
because of a collaboration that I wanted for my first Japanese album, Asia Major. I was looking for a Chinese singer to sing Lover's Tears, which is a famous Chinese pop song. I asked Warner Japan to ask Warner Hong Kong to recommend a singer. Warner Hong Kong recommended Sandy Lam, Lam Yik Lin. And that's how I started working with Sandy. And the, the song became a hit and I started writing songs for her. And I started producing her albums and everything. And she was a star on the rise. So in 1991, she had her first big concert at the Coliseum in Hong Kong, the biggest uh, venue. I was invited to be her guest artist. And every night, a parade of Hong Kong artists would come and watch her concert and they would come backstage. My dressing room was very cleverly positioned before hers. So they would pass by my room and then come and say hello to me. And that's how I met all the heavenly kings and queens. And that's how I ended up writing for all of them. Sisong also wrote for Sandy and for other Chinese pop stars. Along with his brother, he had segued into performing and then producing pop songs in the 1990s. Their experience with crafting TV theme songs served them well as they moved behind the scenes. 我在写主题曲的那些年我学到的就是怎么样为一部电视剧量身定做一首歌这个量身定做这个东西是我觉得非常重要这个就是我写主题曲的那些年我获得的一些养分像我后来我自己开了音乐学校的其中一位学员叫
经常哄我睡觉的时候，他都会唱听哦哦贝罗哦，然后就哄我睡觉。然后我就想，我在想说，这首歌是闽南歌，而且我觉得这首歌在，因为当时候燕之要要去发专辑的时候，发那个华语专辑的时候，你最重要的那个舞台就是到台湾去。那台湾它也是一个闽。以闽南语为主的一个地方，那我觉得这首《天黑黑》呢，是当时候六岁到六十岁的人都懂的。那我就用这个来作为一个一个 hook，OK？、Okay? 天哦哦哦哦，原来的原来那首歌是天哦哦，白落雨，阿公阿家地头白骨哦，然后可是。孙燕姿唱这首歌，听哦哦哦哦，因为他他把奶奶给予他的爱给忘了。This song is, of course, "Tio Cloudy Day," and it was a monster hit that launched yet another Singaporean pop star. In the nineties, I think Singapore music more like a team, not only artists but has producers, has musicians, has music arrangers that work for the industry. If we take Kichan, Xu Meijing as one point zero, then Sun Yanzi, Ah Du, and JJ is definitely two point zero. So in the period from year two thousand to year two thousand ten. I think that was the ten years of the golden era of Singapore pop music in in the Chinese pop market. Since then, it's been a quieter time for Singapore's Chinese pop. So, what can today's music makers learn from the golden ages of the past? Sisson believes that young performers today should know that Singaporean singers like Poon Sao Keng, Sakura Ting, and Stephanie Sun all have something in common, and that's how very distinct each of their voices and singing styles are. You know why they? 这么成功吗？就是因为他们有独特的嗓音。你看潘秀琼老师，他是属于那种低音、很 warm、很有磁性的那那种声音，对不对？然后，所以他的声音是有辨识度的。然后再加上他自己唱歌的那个风格，能够深深的能够让所有听众们记住、听出耳游，像。樱花凌云，他们是一对组合，尤其是樱花姐姐，她的声音是也是非常有辨识度的。然后她当时候她唱法各方面也是非常独特的，只有她会这样唱的。再看回两千年的孙燕姿，她的声音也是很特别的。然后我们帮她设计了一些唱法，那那那那那种感觉，就是有一些真假音的一些一些转变。Yunnan agrees, highlighting singer-songwriter Tanya Chua, Cai Jianya in particular as a Singaporean music maker who has been able to adapt to the greater Chinese market while staying true to her very own sound. 
So people who are successful, right, one of the most important thing is you need to retain your uniqueness. So you can adapt, but you, you must know where uh, your uniqueness is and you have to keep it. So even you listen to the Tanya songs now, although she has shifted to Taiwan, but it, her songs now, it doesn't sound a pure Taiwan type of sound. It's a Tanya sound, okay? So she, she moved on from just having the Western influence, she moved on to the Tanya signature sound. Tanya is among the talented few who have been able to write and perform their own songs. For the homegrown singers who depend on others for their material, having a Singaporean creative team behind them can make a big difference. Just now we were talking about the same thing but different thing, right? So, you know, when Singaporean singers become one of the uh, in thing, big thing, when it started from Kit Chan, right? There were more Singapore singers that were being signed by Taiwan record companies. Some of them, you know, how they do it, right? Yes, I signed a Singaporean singer, but the whole production team is a very Taiwanese team. So, you know, the same thing but different thing, the, 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 the difference doesn't come out much. It can be easily replaced by another Taiwanese singer from another label. When you have a local team and the singer go out together as a pair, your sound, your music, it will be a full package. There's much better cohesion and when you're out in the market, you do stand out in a good way. So what's next for Singapore's Chinese pop? Yunnan believes that the next wave of stars to make a mark overseas could well be those who are currently working in the English language scene in Singapore. If you look at for the past five to eight years, I would say the local Chinese independent artists, or even with labels, the sound that they're creating, the songwriting, you can hear that they are influenced. It's from the 90s and 2000s Mandel pop. So the influence is from J. Cho and David Tao era. So their works are more or less within the zone of Chinese music. So the unique sound is no longer there. So if you put it back into the bigger Chinese market, right, it's harder to stand out. But now, if I look at the English scene, right, if I put Charlie Lim's music into the scene, it's still different. It's very different for the other Chinese artists. If they choose to venture into these markets, these artists will have to brush up on their Mandarin skills, just like many of their predecessors did. Billy, who is now based in mainland China, knows firsthand how tough it is to make an impression in this vast and competitive arena, which has also been the new epic center of Chinese pop in recent years. And fluency in the language is just the beginning. I think the problem with Singapore is not that they are not good in Chinese. They are not good in any language. Because I think the way we brought up, we are so used to write reports. We are so used to write complaint, but we are bad in expressing ourselves. Most Singaporeans always have traveling plan, year-end holiday plan to go other other country. But we are not interested to explore the culture of that country that we go to. We're only interested to go there, find good food, shopping, take photo, come back. Give an example. Although we live in a very multi-nation society, a lot of us have uh, Malay friend, have Indian friend. But ask any Chinese ethnic Singaporean, how deep are they in terms of understanding the Indian culture? I don't think so. They only know Indian food. Indian is one of the four oldest civilizations, but most Singapore Chinese, they're not interested. They don't really spend time being in the land of Singapore. You have the opportunity to expose to a different culture. 
Chinese, Indian, Malay, Europeans. So it's up to you whether or not you want to absorb all the positive energy of a different culture. Adapting to the demands of new lands while staying rooted in the diversity of home is much easier said than done. And while Singapore's Chinese pop has been successful, it cannot be denied that the terms of this success have mostly been defined elsewhere. After all, Singapore has never been the epicentre of Chinese pop. But what happens when the epicentre is right here? That was true for a long time for Singapore's Malay pop. In the next episode, we find out how being at the heart of things shaped this music. Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre, in celebration of its 20th anniversary. Look out for more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To listen to more of these songs mentioned in the podcast, check out our Spotify playlist on esplanade.com offstage.